this is Bella and Mia, and you're listening to Felt That. A podcast where we gain more insight on people in the world making a change. Today we are going to be interviewing Maya Contreras, who is a political strategist. With her political prowess, she advocates for voting rights. Can you introduce yourself? I am an advocate for many issues, but um, my main focus is on voting rights. Awesome. So what started your interest in activism and your inspiration for helping voting rights? Well, I think a lot of people who experience poverty, as as a young child like I did, and I dealt with food insecurity and housing insecurity, um, you begin to start seeing how the dominant narratives in America aren't really matching up to reality, right? There's a lot of dominant narratives that say, if you just work hard enough, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, well, I didn't see that matching up to my family's reality. My mom worked two jobs and yet we were still evicted from our house when I was 11. We ended up living in a storage unit for a short amount of time. And my mom was a very hard worker and we still ended up being evicted. So one of the other narratives that America society pushes is this independence idea and this asking for help is weakness. And I think that's a really damaging narrative. And um, when my mom did finally ask for help when we applied for welfare, she was really treated in this kind of demeaning way by the welfare office. They were kind of blaming her for having three children, that it was her fault. She had made poor choices with her life. You know, she, she's the one that chose to have three children. Um, instead of blaming the policies that caused her not to make a living wage, um, that didn't help her pursue child support. I really saw very young, very early on in my life, you know, this is around age 10, how society was like blaming people and stigmatizing people instead of the policies that were actually harming them. And then my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 37, and then she died at the age of 40. And during, in between that time when she was getting treatment for breast cancer, you know, her doctors would talk about her like she wasn't there. They were making decisions for her. So I started seeing flaws in the healthcare system. So long story short, at 16, my advocacy really began, but it started in in a way before then, because I was getting informed about how our system didn't really work for a lot of people. I saw really how it more stigmatized people, how it criminalized people, really saw how cruel the systems were. So at 16, after my mother, I was 16 when my mom passed away. And so I started working with people that were unhoused because we were almost uh, going to be homeless. So for those people that were experiencing homelessness, I would help collect uh, food and clothing for shelters. Um, I wanted to show people that we shouldn't be blaming people for being unhoused, that just because someone doesn't have a home, it means they were pushed out of that home either because they lacked affordability for the housing or they lacked access or lacked safety. So uh, we needed to, we need to start placing the blame on policies and not on the people. And, um, and that brings me to voting rights. I, I started recognizing that all the things that I cared about, um, food insecurity, housing, climate justice, Um, living wages, that all of that was attached to voting rights. Because if you could not access the ballot box, you could not change any of those issues, immigration, everything. It all comes down to voting rights. Yeah, definitely. 
what will you do to protect the citizens of New York's voting rights? Well, first, I'd say that we should all be working very hard to protect voting rights, all of us. And um, we've always had some citizens, we've always had, you know, some citizens over the age of 18 blocked from the ballot box. So we've never really had a true representative democracy. We, we just haven't because not all citizens have been able to vote. And um, this was made much worse when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. And when it was gutted, um, a rash of voter suppression bills began in 2013. So one way we can protect uh, citizens' voting rights is to financially support groups that are fighting the over 200 voter suppression bills that are in state houses across America right now. And one way we can do that is to support uh, lawyers groups like Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights or the Legal Defense Fund or Democracy Docket or the Brennan Center for Justice or the ACLU. We can also help support or volunteer for groups like Fair Fight Action and Black Voters Matter. And what I want to say is, as far as how I have aided the protection of voting rights, and I, I think of this as something as me working in tandem with with thousands of people that are working on voting rights as i i help give lectures on voting rights across the united states because i want people to understand the history of voter suppression in this country that we've never been a fully franchised democracy and because of that we don't have the type of policies that are going to be protecting us you know it took women a very long time to get voting rights it wasn't until 1920 and even then black women really couldn't vote until 1965 and there really wasn't a protection for disabled community until 1990 to make um voting booths accessible and you know native people couldn't vote later uh, we had language minorities that weren't able to really vote until 1973 because the the, the voting language wasn't in their language so you see, it's been very, it's been a very tough struggle. So I want people to understand that um, that all of us have to push for voting rights. And as far as voting rights in New York State, you know, I testified on behalf of the New York uh, Voting Rights Bill um, last year, right before COVID hit. Um, and New York is doing a better job of correcting their long history of voter suppression. Like we've added early voting. Last year was the first time we could. Um, at or have early voting, which is incredibly important for working families that um, can't get that one day off to vote. Um, and then I would also say that we're going to have automatic voter registration soon. I think we'll have it for the next election. And we have ranked choice voting now, which is really excellent. It makes candidates less likely to fight with each other and more focused on policies. And so um, I just will say that I will always make voter education a part of my advocacy. And speaking of this last election, what are your thoughts on the lack of voting places in the recent election? So this has been a problem for a very long time, and it's a problem for multiple reasons. Sometimes a county will, county will give an excuse and say, listen, we just lack the funds to have open polling places. And we just see that that's just not correct. That is not true. They're willing to spend the money on other things like printing the ballots and doing all these other things. They have 
they can have volunteers open these places. This is wrong. They've also used the excuse of, well, it's not ADA, it's not um, accessible to the disability community. That's just another way of pitting communities against each other. We know what this is. This is a voter suppressive thing. And and in New York, they, they did use the excuse of COVID and maybe that could be valid, but it never should be. Every, every county should have enough voting polling stations that no one has to wait more than a few minutes to get in and get out. And they know that. It's just a way to suppress the vote. And I will tell you, when the Voting Rights Act was gutted in 2013, one of the first things that Texas did was not only make voting harder by making a more stringent voter ID law, but they also closed down polling places because they know that it affects disabled people, it affects senior citizens. It's a way of carving people out uh, of society. Definitely. Yeah. And Georgia recently, I mean, they passed their voting bill. I know you've talked about this before, but what are your opinions on that? And does this harm Georgia's voting rights? It absolutely does. And um, and first, let me say, I want everyone to support some of these organizations in Georgia. One is Georgia Muslim Voter Project. Another one is Voter uh, Black Voters Matter. Um, Spread the Vote Georgia and Women Engaged. These are groups that are on the ground doing everything they can, they can to do voter education, to get the vote out, and to fight voter suppression. And the bills that, that Georgia just passed are incredibly harmful. Uh, I believe the bill was SB 202. Uh, They called it the Election Integrity Act of 2021. And let me just say this really fast. Election integrity. This is really grotesque because voter election integrity has been a dog whistle since Jim Crow to say that they are going to be pushing black people out of voting. So people have been using the word integrity for a very long time. And this is kind of a wink and a nudge that they are moving people off the voting rolls, you know? So that's what's really gross about calling it the Election Integrity Act. Um, it has a it has a very racist history attached to it. And so what this bill did was it added multiple obstacles to of, uh, to voting. It reduced the number of ballot boxes, you know, for people to be able to drop off their ballot. It shortened early voting, which harms working people. It added more voter ID requirements. It made it illegal for outside groups to give water or food to voters stuck in long lines. Sometimes people think that that's not a big deal, but if you're waiting in line for 14 hours and that has happened in Georgia, you need to uh, have water and have access to food. It also more insidiously gives the GOP control um, over election administration. That sounds kind of dull, but basically what they're doing is if there is a Republican that says, listen, we need to count all the votes, they can remove that member and say and replace him with someone that says we don't need to count all the votes. That is that is incredibly grotesque that they did that. And so, listen, Georgians are determined to overcome these obstacles. And these obstacles should be in place 
uh, in the first place. But the GOP in Georgia, and I want to make sure that I'm talking about elected GOP, because there's a lot of Republicans in Georgia that are not in office that want people to have voting rights. It's the people that are elected that are trying to make sure that these voters don't have access to the ballot box. You know, Georgia GOP, for the last few elections, they purged voters, they closed polling locations, um, and it's really despicable work. But we all need to be very diligent in this fight by just making people aware of what they're doing. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Has being a woman in politics had an effect on how you were perceived? Um, I will say yes, and you can just use, I'll just use two recent examples, right? The press would say to Hillary Clinton that she was too serious, too prepared, didn't smile enough. And now with Vice President Kamala Harris, they're saying she smiles too much. She isn't serious. So you can see with women, it's a no-win situation in a way. And being a woman, especially if you're a black woman or a trans woman or a disabled woman or a woman of color, it's incredibly different across the board in politics. And it's really hard to shape our own narratives Because legacy media, and legacy media I mean by like New York Times and Washington Post and AP, these media outlets are dominated by cisgender white men, and they're the ones that are crafting our narratives, really. And so really, we can't let that deter ourselves, right? We have to understand what we're up against. And we just have to acknowledge that running for office is for a while going to be painful, but we really have to be bold in that. And I hope that... uh, by more people running for office, it gets a little bit easier for the next woman to run for office. Like I'm thankful for women like Fannie Lou Hamer and Shirley Chisholm, who ran back in the 60s and 70s, who cleared a pathway for for women now to run to make it a little bit easier. What advice would you give to young teens looking to help and who aspire to be a woman in politics? Well, I'd say first and foremost, find out which issue you're most passionate about. Um, I remember my mom said to me when I was a kid, she said, Maya, I know you want to care about every single thing, but you can't care about every single thing. And the thing is, she was right in a way, and I will say wrong in a way, because whatever you care about, it's always attached to other issues all of these issues are interdependent on each other. It's like if you care about housing and making sure people are housed, you're caring about mental health. You're caring about safety. That, so you're caring about multiple things when you care about something. So first I would say find out what issue you're most passionate about. Then I would say learn as much as you can about that issue so you can discuss it with multiple people. Because storytelling is really important component um, to advocacy and activism, it's a really persuasive thing. And I don't mean that in a manipulative way. I mean that telling personal stories and attaching your story to your activism really helps people understand it and understand how they connect to it. And then I would say work for a campaign or run for office as soon as you're eligible. Like there are offices you can run for when you're 18 and you should because there are over 500,000 elected seats in America, a half a million seats available. And all of them make decisions about what happens in that community. So we need to make people, we need people to participate more in our democracy. And that, that has to go beyond voting. I mean, voting is crucial. It's a crucial part of crafting our policies. Um, but so is making decisions about the city, state, and federal um, uh, policies. And that's what happens when you run for office. You get to talk, you get to make 
be part of the laws, part of the policies. You're you're making decisions about budgets. And to me, budgets are moral documents. They are telling us what this country cares about based on where we're spending our money. And most of us, and I will say, you know, most teens think maybe they're too early, you know, it's too young for them to get involved. And it's never too young. It's never too young. And I always, I can't stand it when, when older people say, well, you know, they're naive or they don't know yet. And I'm like, listen, I was someone that very much knew what was going on at the age of 10. And I very much got involved when I was 16. So please don't tell anybody young. They don't, you know, they're, you all are dealing with even, I'd say, maybe not more obstacles than, than I was when I was a teenager, but you're dealing with different obstacles, right? You're dealing with things like um, cyberbullying. You're dealing with things where people are trying to dox you or different things like that. And so to me, the, the way that you're experiencing life is a way you're going to be able to add value to policies and to add value to an office if you run for it. So I really encourage everybody to run for office because I think that a lot of people are suspicious of people who run for office. They're like, that person's got to be corrupt if they're running. And so we have to change the narrative around that and say, listen, these are good people that want to do good things. Nobody is perfect. I think that's another thing that stops. I think it stops women. Men seem to be like, I'm great. I'm going to run for office. But women tend to be like, I don't know if I'm good enough. Do I look good enough? Should I, am I smart enough? And yeah, you already are. You're already enough. You know. So then to me, it's just like, go ahead and do it. Put yourself out there in that way. And it'll encourage more people to do so. I completely agree. I think yeah. women are definitely way too scared to get into politics. And I mm-hmm. think you're such a role model to young girls, women in general, to go into politics. Um, but who did you look up to? Who who made you want to be who you are today? I would say Representative Barbara Lee. I mean, there's a lot of women that I look up to. But one of the reasons why I like Representative Barbara Lee, and she's from um, California, is she's been really bold and unapologetic in her policies. She shows you that you can be an older person. I think she's in her 70s, if not early 80s. And she's been one of the most progressive uh, politicians we've ever had in the United States Congress. She believes that housing is a right that it should be enshrined in our state and federal constitution. She doesn't feel like it should be monetized, that everyone should have access to permanent housing. She didn't vote to make our country go to war after September 11th. She was the only member of Congress to vote against using force after 9-11. So she shows me that you can stay true to your values, do the work, and deeply care about your constituents all at the same time. She really keeps her head down and she gets her work done. And I think that there's different ways of being a legislator. Like, For example, like a lot of people do look up to AOC because AOC is a fantastic communicator. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I will say, though, someone like Lauren Underwood in um, in Illinois is a better legislator than AOC. And the thing is, we need room for all of that, right? We need room for people that are excellent communicators and people that are great legislators. And we can have all of these things together because what it does is show you what people's range is, you know? So I would say, so I would say bottom line, Barbara Lee is probably my favorite. And also I'd say Shirley Chisholm, you know, she's the first black woman to run for Congress in my district. 
and and win. And we haven't had a black woman since then from my district win for Congress. Um, so yeah, I'll say that. I'll say that. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you both. And, and thank you for, for having me on your premiere podcast. <laughs> yes, it was wonderful to have you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Like This has been really fun to talk with you and like gain more insight with politicians. And this has been really fun. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And um, let me know when this is ready. Will do. Yeah, definitely. All right. Bye. Today on the Fault That Podcast, we talked to Maya Contreras about her work as a political strategist. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Felt That. To find more information about Felt, head to feltnyc.org or check us out on our Twitter at feltnyc1. We are also on Facebook at feltnyc.org. Thank you for joining the Felt That Podcast. Stay safe and tuned in.